Hello, it's Jack Tutor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Arnold Dreiblatt, an American media artist and composer currently based in Berlin. The new album by Arnold Dreiblatt and the Orchestra of Excited Strings is called Resolve and it's out now on Drag City. It's part of the continuum of Arnold's music. Arnold strings a double bass with piano wire and plays it in this very specific way which produces this tone which is unmistakably Arnold's. It was great to hear the first few seconds of this new album and hear the echoes of something like Nodal Excitation from 1982. Arnold's been doing this for a while. He's also, um, in his bio, references being part of the second generation of New York minimal composers, studied music with Pauline Oliveros, Lamont Young. He's very involved, has plenty of stories involving a lot of those individuals from that scene. But yeah, the current incarnation of the Orchestra of Excited Strings includes Arnold, Oren Ambachi, Conrad Sprenger and Joachim Schutz and it's a more jammed out, it feels like a, a groovier release than a lot of the stuff I've heard from the orchestra. They seem to really lean into the rhythm and run very slack which is great, you just hear them all rolling around these grooves and of course it's a beautiful sounding record when you've got headphones on if you're playing it loud over speakers the overtones and the various harmonic interminglings that get kicked off of the instruments is quite astounding it was so lovely to speak to Arnold we were a little shorter on time for this one and Arnold just had buckets of stories and insights so you don't really hear me talk much which I like a lot Hope you enjoy this one. I hope you're enjoying the podcast generally. If you want to donate to the show, just to help keep things ticking, you can do over at coffee, ko-fi.com forward slash crucial listening. You can donate monthly or just one off, any amount you please. Thank you for listening as always. This is Arnold Dryblatt on Crucial Listening. Hello, Arnold. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hello, Jack. Nice to be here. Lovely to have you on. So we're here to talk about your three important albums that you've picked for this podcast. Before we get to those, I want to ask about your new album, Resolve, which is out on Drag City when this comes out. It's coming out when we're talking about it now, but will be out by then. So this is the first release from... Arnold Dreiblatt and the Excited Strings since 2002, right? So over 20 years. So I'm guessing The Adding Machine was the one before this with this group, right? Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. I mean, it's 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 also not exactly accurate. I mean, I'd have to 
think back um, in 2012, uh, I did a record with um, an indie band, Megaphone, and yeah, in yeah. a sense, uh-huh. uh, we toured also a bit together. So that you know, one could consider that. Uh, kind of an orchestra of excited strings. Um, And then there's been a lot of recordings coming out. So a lot of um, archival recordings, uh, especially on Black Truffle, Mm -hmm. uh, double record sets, uh, Choose, and then a number of other earlier recordings coming out uh, from the 80s and 90s, um, which was great. Um, uh, So actually the band that that is represented or this very because the orchestra of, uh, orchestra of excited strings is kind of a um i hate to say label in this context but it's a <laughs> <laughs> it's a um uh, a title that i've given to my ensemble since 1979 so you know first in new york and and other when uh, in the states and then when i came to germany and um the ensemble which was you know more or less represented on Resolve was formed in 2009. Uh, we did record in 2012, but actually were unhappy with the recording. Uh, um, shortly before the pandemic, uh, good friend Oren Ambashi, who mm-hmm. I, we had been working with for a long time, and as I said, so a lot of recordings on his label, uh, joined the band, and we did some concerts, and then we decided to go into the studio, but the pandemic did... Um, uh, kind of delay things a bit in all of our lives. Yeah. Uh, sure. So um, uh, so it's yeah it's finally coming out. I mean it's it was finished uh, about a half a year ago and it's you know been in the burners. Uh, yeah. Uh, huh. now waiting to come out. But okay, of course the ensemble has been performing uh, all that time, and uh, I've been working also on other projects, musical projects. Uh, also at the same time, so it's not as if I've been inactive since 2011. <laughs> yes, yeah. of course, yeah. Uh, right. Really interesting to hear that you went into the studio to basically attempt this configuration quite a while back. Uh, I'm intrigued as to how this most recent session went in comparison. Like, how did you go back into the studio and, I don't know, ensure that things turned out different? I guess time had passed in the interim, but... Yeah, how was this session right. different to the first one? Okay, first of all, it's a, it's a, the Orchestra of Excised Strings in its current in, in, uh, incarnation um, ha- contains two members who are uh, both composers, performers, uh, but also sound engineers or techies. So that probably has a lot to do with why <laughs> the first record uh, didn't come out, but um, uh, or at least why we were not so uh, sure about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's actually a very lucky situation. We were invited to uh, a wonderful space in Brussels called um, Atelier Klaus, which um, closed now, but is, I hear, opening again, which is a venue for concerts of experimental music um, and uh, with a great stage and also a studio. And, uh, and we, um, it was, uh, we had performed also elsewhere in Belgium and came and did a concert and then the next after the concert we were in residence for a few days and did the recordings there was a i would say that my music is not so easy to record or at least there's many different philosophies how to record Mm -hmm. um um, so uh i was very very happy um 
with um, uh, Christoph, who recorded there, great sound engineer. He, you know, it was great to perform live first and then do the recordings. He was very patient. Um, we didn't finish. Then we went in again uh, to, um, yeah, I think a year later uh, because of the pandemic to in Berlin to the Mouse on Mars studio. Mouse on Mars, I don't know, maybe some of the li listeners know uh -huh. uh, yeah, the group. Yeah, yeah. so um, they have a great studio also in Berlin, and so we're happy to go in there. And then a long period of, of uh, post-production because of my two... <laughs> My two sound engineers, and um, uh, but I'm, you know, I'm really, really very happy with the result. It's so interesting to hear your sound. Obviously, there are variations within your sound, but also your kind of more steadfast qualities of what you do. Be surrounded by different configurations of instruments. Yeah, I'm familiar with Oren's work. He's been on this podcast before too. Um, what is it about this? configuration of players and you've mentioned that you've got two sound engineers there that's a big plus but right, what, right. what else makes them a pleasure to play with and make your music well with? well okay i mean i i they're not two sound engineers they're two musicians and composers who who are also sound engineers mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. uh uh, one, I think, very important in the group. Uh, we kind of started it together and we worked to, uh, together in the previous years in other configurations. Jörg Hiller, who goes under the stage name Konrad Springer, uh, mm -hmm. who is also working a lot with Oren uh, and a lot of other musicians. Um, he's a solo artist uh, and has been performing extensively um, um, we met, uh, yeah, it's already 20 years ago. And, uh, you know, I should say they're all, they're all younger. That's an interesting aspect. Right. So, um, they're all a lot younger, uh, and, and bring that into it. Um, they all have their, you know, their own music, which they've also, and practices, musical practices, which they've brought into the ensemble. And, um, yeah, uh, individually, Conrad Springer, uh, he developed a, um, uh, a kind of automated guitar with solenoids that's controlled by computer, which is also part of the sound. Uh, he, um, uh, he's also the percussionist. Uh, and as I say, we've been working together since maybe 2003. Uh, um, wow. He brought in um, a uh, guitarist, also a sound designer and uh, <laughs> musician from Hamburg, um, uh, Joachim uh, Schutz, who has uh, been also working with a lot of different people um, to play actually a guitar that I designed, which has frets in this uh, other tuning, which I work with. We can talk about that later. Mm. Uh, and a sustainer. Yeah, so I've been working with this guitar since early 90s, um, uh, has also very thin strings, uh, uh, um, just wire strings. Uh, I tend to like wires rather than yes. overspun <laughs> strings. And uh, it has a very particular sound because of this, um, uh, the sustainers and the thin strings, and of course playing in this other intonation. So he's learned to play in that. Uh, and then um, Oren, um, okay, there's always been a, you know, different roles, so in the ensemble. So 
um, you know, I am producing a kind of uh, rhythmic drone with strong overtones on my excited bass uh, mm -hmm. and to what I call my excited bass, which is not a bass, is actually in the violin range, also with piano wire on it in a particular way of playing. And at the same time, uh, of course, it's the percussion that's driving it along. Also, your killer, Conrad uh, Springer, is producing also some sine waves and uh, this activated guitar at the same time playing also rhythmically. Uh, and then on top of that, um, um, Joachim Schutz is playing, uh, is selecting or in going through actually chord project uh, uh, progressions in, okay, uh, not in a traditional sense, but using different chord structures within the tuning system that I use. Mm. And uh, on top of that, I've always had a sustaining instrument uh, that has been with this ensemble. Uh, we worked for some years with... Uh, Robin Hayward, who's a, um, a microtunal um, tuba player from the UK who lives in Berlin, a uh, very interesting musician, has his own ensemble. Um, I worked with uh, trombone. Uh, we had a hurdy-gurdy over many years in the ensemble dating back to my time in New York, different sustaining instruments. So um, uh, there is uh, Oren's role, you know, so he... Uh, mm. With his guitar set up and his little secret uh, boxes uh, <laughs> on the table, he you know is producing this layers of uh, fat, big harmonic content, which fits very well with the ensemble. So we had to kind of retune his guitar a little bit to fit in, but uh, um, yeah, it was interesting. You know, he just came in. Actually, we first played together in Japan. Right. Not all of us. Uh, that was uh, I uh, myself. Uh, uh, again, your killer, Conrad Sprenger, Oren uh, Ambashi, and uh, Jim O'Rourke. We did uh, uh, first uh, kind of a little tour concert, and then we worked with other musicians in Tokyo. That was the beginning, and it just seemed to fit. Yeah, uh, it's a fitting is not only the instrument. I mean, that's a part of it, but fitting um. is like the yeah. Yeah, it's, it's 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 hard to say. What is it? The personality of the player, the approach to sound. Yeah, I'm yeah. not looking at my ensemble for a, you know a master improviser who's going to show off his his uh, virtuosic talent. That's not what the music is about. The music is about you know producing a particular t type of sound and fitting within the the overall timbre. So yeah, and and uh, I think Oren understands that well. Yeah, nice. It's the record is awesome i've had such a good time with it i'll include links in the show notes so that people can check it out as well Great. and yeah let's go to your important records arnold so one question i like to ask at this point is about how you thought about the word important when picking your list i mean was there a way that you understood the word important in order to come up with the three records that you did Right, that's a very good question. So I had to kind of chew on that a bit. Uh, mm. I think, um, yeah, it was first the question, are they records that are important to me now? Am I supposed to look for some obscure uh, uh, records or, um, I don't know, uh, recordings that, you know, I, I tend to be listening to now? Or are they records for me that are important historically and maybe because of my generation, you know, I'm not up on all the newest things. I mean, people recommend things to me. So I thought I would choose three recordings that have been important to me historically, like uh, 
Uh, and that was hard, yeah, because there's a lot mm. of different composers <laughs> I could have chosen, different music, um, uh, especially in the earlier years. I mean, there's a lot of different music that influenced me, and I could have easily picked many times this number of three, mm-hmm. but I chose kind of three different directions. Love it. Okay, great. So let's go for your first pick, then, Arnold. So. You could start by giving me the name of it and then a little bit about why it's important to you too. So the first record I selected um, is Tony Conrad with Faust, outside the Dream Syndicate and specifically uh, the one side called The the Side of Man and Womankind. Hmm. Um, And there's a bit of a a, a story uh, connected to this um, from my own biography. Okay, many people know that I studied with Lamont Young. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much influenced by his work, uh, and um, uh, that was in the mid '70s. Uh, I think '75, '76, even into the beginning of '77 when I studied with him, um, and uh, I was also his tape librarian or tape archivists. During that time, I was working with his hundreds of tapes. And of course, one of the things about Lamont, we won't get into the whole politics of this, but right. Lamont is, is not an easy personality. And he, he um, uh, was not very generous in the sense of allowing all of his music to be heard. Mm-hmm. And, um, and as I was listening, I mean, I had access to a lot of the recordings. I um, I noted. I mean, my of course the uh, I to say it again. The most important period, I I I feel in in Lamont's work and the period which, in talking to those of the older generation, my peers in New York, you know the the period that blew everybody's minds um, was the period in the mid '60s, uh, the theater of eternal music with Tony Conrad, John Cale. And yeah, others uh, in the group later, Terry Riley, and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and of course, I um, I should say I'm also a visual artist. I mean, I uh, all these years, uh, not as a hobby, but I uh, I was teaching in an art school here in Germany many years, and I have a lot mm-hmm. of my background is in experimental film and video, and um, and I studied in Buffalo where Tony Conrad. Later was teaching, uh, he wasn't yet in the period I was there in 74. He was actually the, um, uh, studying video arts with Woody and Stane Vasilka that brought me into thinking about sound. There was a fantastic uh, uh, sound or music department there uh, uh, with the composer Morden Feldman as the director. Our families knew each other. So, uh, and Tony came to give a lecture there at that time about tuning. So, which I remembered, and mm. and then I understood in in um, uh, looking at uh, 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 the history or this period uh, in Lamont's uh, uh, work that um, uh, Lamont composed, uh, uh, which you know he he was uh, very early working with sustained pitches, yeah. So, but those mm-hmm. early compositions were were written in Western notation, but. This uh, idea of tuning and the harmonic series and so forth with which he's associated actually, I believe, came uh, through Tony, who was a mathematician and had been working with this earlier. I've written an article about this that was published in The Wire and now in a, in a book. Um, and uh, so that was really interesting to me. And um, 
But there were, none of this material was released. I mean, there was, I don't know if you know this, that uh, a kind of a bootleg, um, yes. uh, Day of Niagara, which came out on Table of the Elements, which I gave to Jim O'Rourke, <laughs> Jim gave to uh, uh, Table of the Elements. We won't get into that, but, um, uh, but in any case, which I had, you know, one recording I copied and, um, you know, I was curious, of course, I couldn't look at all these tape binders and not listen <laughs> and um uh but there was so little available and it was always frustrating to me mm. and okay then fast forward to because now we're coming to this recording i'm sorry it was a long intro <laughs> more, <laughs> more of an about. intro than the other records are going to get <laughs> and uh in i'm not sure what year this was okay this is a not it came out in 73 mm -hmm. uh but, um, or it was recorded in 73. I'm not sure actually when it came out on Table of the Elements, uh, but uh, I, uh, a bit later, certainly later, um, I was in a visiting someone, uh, actually Ernie Gusella, who's a video artist in New York, um, after I was no longer uh, working with Lamont and I was starting to begin doing my own music. And, uh, and Ernie said, you know, have you ever heard this? He knew that I started with Lamont and he put on this record and this side yeah and it blew my mind you know mm. because i thought wow that's that sound yeah the sound right. of that ensemble that tony was playing uh i mean this is also hard to talk about it's a certain timbre it's a certain kind of screechy violin very high harmonics digging in near the bridge which is a sound that you know was very important to my own music and uh and I immediately recognized it um, as that sound that I heard on Day of Niagara. Um, uh, hmm. Okay, at that time, um, it was a rare recording, actually. And, uh, and actually, what it was, a, uh, actually, I think it was the LP. Yeah, it was re-released. It was the LP that I heard. And um, it must have been around uh, 77, yeah, 78. Right, uh, and that was uh, that was also that was very important to me. And of course, you know, soon after, it took a few years till Tony. I mean, it was one moment of Tony performing with them and recording. Also, the drum beats. I understood uh, later from uh, there was also a a concert at the kitchen around that time with this kind of steady drum beat. So. Uh, he had this idea of like taking frequency and slowing it down mm -hmm. uh, from mm -hmm. the audio uh, uh, range and bringing it down, then becomes a drum beat. Yeah, so um, yeah, extremely minimal, just this you know hitting of the drum and this you know incredibly complex drone sound, which has a kind of a folky uh, uh, character to it. Yeah, so mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, uh, so, yeah, and, and later then in early 90s, I, I was in somewhere in Europe, I think in, yeah, I, I, Tony came over, uh, I did the sound for him, uh, or I was on the mixer when he performed in, in uh, Linz in Austria, I guess around 91, and he played it, yeah, it was the first time I really heard it live, oh, and then wow. of course, of course it has a lot to do with, yeah, the connection to Jim and then Table of the Elements uh, and him starting to tour then. So basically what he did was, out of his own frustration that Lamont, his old friend, wouldn't give him copies of the tapes that he played on, uh, he started playing it himself. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the short version of it.
And it's a good lead-in to the next one, Sacred Guitar and Violin Music of the Modern Aztecs. So mm. um, in that period, as I began, uh, um, also my music, I listened to a lot of non-Western music. I mean, of course, in addition to I was in New York going to concerts, it was a very exciting time, the 70s. Uh, mid-70s, late-70s, early-80s, uh, a very, very um, uh, fruitful period in all the arts and especially in music. It was also a very small world, like a lot of names which are now quite well-known were, you know, it was a small community. And, mm. uh, um, and I also listened to a lot of, you know, folk music, non-Western music, um, and, and uh, okay, this record is now on Smithsonian Folkways because the Smithsonian Institute, the Museum and Research Institute in Washington, bought the catalog. But uh, this Folkways was, I think, founded by Moses Ash, uh, and it was an incredible label. I mean, also in the early days, this is why, you know, like I asked you your age. So one has to be transported back to a time where you know there was no internet yeah uh-huh yeah, yeah. how yeah. how are we going to get uh information how we how do you know even what's what's happening what's interesting so mm-hmm. there used to be like record stores and uh, certain record stores and i've heard this story from others even if you were born in ohio or some small town in england you know there'd be some place you would go in some larger town or city and there would be one record store that had kind of weirder stuff and there would be somebody there you could talk to yeah 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 yeah. and say uh what's this you know you'd look through the stacks and they'd say well you might also be interested in this and uh and there were some radio programs i don't know how it was in the uk but uh there was in new york public radio wbai and would play there would be certain shows would play interesting music or college stations but it was very limited Mm -hmm. Uh, and i found this record in the Lincoln Center Music Library, which is also where I discovered Meredith Monk and a number of other people uh, very early on. You know, I was I was very young. I was maybe 20 uh, in, in, in uh, let's see, in 75, I was 22. So uh-huh. uh, and uh, yeah, this time I, we're talking about I was like 21, 22, 23. And I found this record. Yeah. There in the library, I took it out and uh and then um, I think I actually made a reel-to-reel copy of it, but then eventually I bought it. Uh, the, these these Folkways records were really heavy. I mean, so and they had these great, <laughs> I mean, physically heavy, and they had these great covers. So the covers, because it was this, they had a style um, with paper over, kind of laminated over a, a kind of. I don't know what the technical term for it was. But it was very unusual, and they had things from, you know, such as uh, sacred music, violin music of the modern Aztecs. Uh, so, but you could find experimental music. You know, they had some John Cage. They had um, what we would call today um, uh, music, um, uh, you know, recording in the landscape. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we call that again? Field recording. So, field recordings, which is funny to me because field recordings actually comes from anthropology yeah when right, they would yeah. go and and make field re- this is actually a real field recording yeah mm, uh-huh. uh in its original term yeah i mean use of the term so um yeah i think that's that's also um yeah it's also interesting to think back you know how what it meant to find a record like this and um 
And then mm-hmm. when I, well, I think what what interested me about it, uh, okay, first of all, just to say, I mean, okay, it's um, maybe the covers, of, the title's a bit misleading. Okay, it is sacred music. It's ritual music. Um, it's it's the people that play it. It's the Nahu or Nahua, I don't know how you pronounce it, uh, people who are the descendants of the, um, of the Aztecs, yeah? And mm-hmm. their language is a modern yeah, version of the Aztec language. So uh, obviously it was changed, probably has Spanish in it and so forth. Um, but it's great. On the record, it says things like, you know, uh, one says Aztec violinists, guitarists, ritual specialists, young right, girls, yeah. and then one old woman. <laughs> right, right. This is great. <laughs> and then another one, it says ritual specialists, young girls and dancers, you know. Uh, yeah. Male dancers with rattles, yeah. So um, I think what fascinated about it is is the string sound, which is of course um, somehow related to the sound of my music. Also in my earliest uh, recordings, uh, the first record, Nodal Excitation, because um, uh, this is what I was listening to at the time, uh, and uh, you know they're they're homemade violin. Uh, there's a homemade violins and guitars. They're not bought. Yeah. You can mm-hmm. see it on the cover, what they're playing. And, um, uh, yeah, it also connects to Tony Conrad, you know, this violin sound, you know, not the, the um, uh, uh, sort of refined, or I hate to use the word refined, but at least the, the um, accepted uh, uh, contemporary classical violin timbre with heavy vibrato, but mm-hmm. just the raw playing on the strings and getting the sound out. And, and of course, folk music also, you know, I'm also a great fan of, of things like uh, Cajun music. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, um, and uh, uh, there's something, you know, the music, it, it kind of turns into it's, it's dance music, yeah, for a movement, but it's also music that has something circular in it. And yeah. uh, the melody comes again and again. You know, I never forget. I was once at a concert in New York, uh, and uh, I, um, I of Cajun music. It was actually an African American Cajun band, and the, playing the first time in front of you know basically a white audience in New York. This is in the '70s, and one tune, everybody clapped very loud, and then. The leader was the Ardwam brothers, you know, a family. Uh-huh, <laughs> and right. uh, the leader, the oldest man, he just said, oh, you liked it, huh? Okay, we'll play it again. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was great. That was you know, great. you'd never do that in a, in a <laughs> no concert. Yeah. <laughs> right, so, so, yeah, I think, um, uh, of course, in terms of minimalism, yeah, uh, minimalism can be interpreted in different ways, but we say like reduced forms, uh, reduced structures, repetition, and so forth. Of course, we find that in folk music and a lot of non-Western music, and also classical music like gagaku, Japanese gagaku, and Middle Eastern music. I mean, uh, Lamont, of course, studied Indian music. Okay, we won't get into that, but uh, <laughs> there is a um, uh, uh, there is a connection. Yeah, and I mm. think uh, um, uh, so. Uh, in terms of the in- instrumentation, I somehow recognize this is something um, uh, which spoke to me at the time and related to other things I was doing.
Arnold, let's go to your final important record in that case. So, yeah, give me the name of the record and the artist and a little bit about why it's important to you too. Okay. Um, the third record is Automatic Writing uh, from Robert Ashley, 1979, uh, issued on Lovely Music, uh, his own record label with Mimi Johnson. Um, yeah, this is something a little bit different. I, I, you know, again, I could have chosen so many other things, but I thought to go in another direction, which maybe relates a little bit more to, to my other work in the mm. arts and uh, to some degree, or at least both to music and to um, uh, some of my other practices. Um, what's interesting is, okay, it's uh, 1979. I heard it. I don't think I had it back then. I don't know. I, I got it some years later. I have to say that even though, you know, I was in this scene, in fact, I studied at Wesleyan with Alvin Lucier when also um, uh, um, uh, De Marinus uh, was, uh, 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 Paul De Marinus was teaching there, so I knew him. He also uh, worked on this record designing the electronic circuits as a composer also. Um, of course, through Alvin and, and him. I mean, I was in these circles with the lovely music people. <laughs> I don't know how else. You know, there was a whole scene. There was a whole scene, uh, um, you know, yeah, which, um, yeah, uh, not only, be, uh, okay, Bob died recently, but um, uh, a lot of those people, some of them are, are known, some of them not so well known from, yeah, Peter Gordon, Jill Crozen, uh, Blue Jean Tyranny, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. I think at the time I was very much, you know, I was a bit of a uh, stringent minimalist and, uh, uh, and I was really into sound. And for me at the time, I felt that, um, that uh, 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 Bob Ashley was a bit poppy, yeah? And right. uh, it's interesting to say that, you know, so, and, uh, and in fact, I was very close friends with Phil Niblock back then. I could have chosen his music, but I chose Tony instead. Um, old friend, um, uh, I remember that Phil then was a little skeptical about that whole lovely music scene. Yeah. Uh, oh. And, and, uh, and even Alvin was at, you know, they, uh, private parts, uh, um, they came up and did the whole thing in Wesleyan when I was there. And uh, even though they're very old friends, he was like, you know, they're acting like the Rolling Stones, I remember Alvin said. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but later I started to be interested in, in, um, in Ashley uh, gradually. Uh, my other work is very much text oriented. That's one thing. And I also work with themes related to memory. And, um, and I, it turned out that actually uh, I started to understand that that Ashley was also interested in this area, and they also was working with text. And this piece, automatic writing, um, yeah, it's considered a very early ambient work. I mean, of course, it, the term ambient didn't exist at the time. The text is barely understandable. Um, mm -hmm. It's almost subliminal. I would call it subliminal. Um, uh, I think Ashley wrote about it that it um, he was interested in involuntary speech. Yeah. And uh, I can maybe make a connection because, in fact, more recently I worked for a number of years and, uh, and did an installation uh, with sound and image um, uh, related. It's called the, the resting state, which is a state of the brain when we have no input. 
Yeah, when we're kind of daydreaming and, you know, things come up from the past and we we're in a waiting room and then we start thinking, well, next week I'm supposed to meet this guy and uh, we'll probably Mm. talk about this or that. And I, I I did a work about that with this speech, which also includes sound. I mean, there's also... Um, a record that I'm working on now that's going to come out with some of this material. And so it is, an, you know, it's been a, an interest of mine for many years. Uh, there's something about this record because, you know, you listen, you can't quite get what it's about. Uh, I mean, the content is kind of drifting. And when I use these terms like subliminal, non-voluntary, or it's also, um, uh, you, you kind of can't, quite put your finger on what's happening. I mean, there's some tones coming in and out, but we drift along with it. So it's another type of minimalism. Yeah, so mm-hmm. uh, in a sense, but also involving text and maybe involving a mental state, you know, that we are often in, but don't really look at and don't really examine. So, um, I mean, there are many other pieces of his that I like very much, but I think this is something very special. Uh um and yeah it's kind of a it's a classic recording and uh and and very unusual so there's two maybe two interesting aspects one is that um as a as a lesson to all the younger public out there what you don't like now you might like later on you may rediscover it yeah yeah you know you may listen to something that you really love when you were younger and listen to it 15 years later and think oh god why did i what do I find? What did I ever find interesting in this? Or maybe the other way that, you know, I've also seen in myself that I revisit certain preoccupations I had earlier in music. Um, I abandon interests and then come back to them or um, even suddenly discover some type of, you know, uh, in the terms of, of Bob, I, um, yeah, I have great respect for his work, but um, I mean, also some of his later work, um, uh, for instance, he did a, a I forget which uh, title it is now, but he uh, created a work um, uh, where the text is about getting older. Uh, a beautiful text, but and um, and also it, it took me a while to understand that his music is in a way functioning with the text in a certain uh, relationship. Uh, which is hard to define, although it's quite, um, when I've looked at I got to know Sam Ashley, his son, and we worked together once uh, in Vienna. Um, uh, huh. And I understood then how it scored out, how the text, this is something he developed later uh, after automatic writing, where he had a certain kind of notation for the rhythm of the text. Uh, not exactly what you would find in a typical Western score, but a kind of, uh, yeah, kind wow. of finding a, a, a tempo. And there were also drawings of this. Um, and there were certain speakers who he worked with who could do that. Uh, Sam was one of them. Unfortunately, he passed away also. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. A composer from this time who uh, really looked at not only uh, speech as a sound, but also um, uh, looking at how peop- uh, he often listened to conversations, random conversations, what he would hear in the street or where he was, and, and also from his, I think he grew up in the Midwest, from the world that he grew up with, and then incorporating that into his work. So, uh, And then he, of course, pioneered uh, in collaboration with other musicians, uh, uh, certain techniques with electronics, and also... Um, 
yeah, this kind of drifting in and out of, of uh, almost, um, uh, how can I say it, maybe music which seems to have no particular at- attention, you know. Yeah. Um, sometimes I feel like in his work, it's almost like sitting in some Holiday Inn restaurant, a bar late at night, and there's some guy playing some cocktail piano, and then people are talking <laughs> around you, you know, it has this kind of atmosphere some of the works yeah and mm. i think that's where he got it yeah also yeah um it's another way of thinking about intention than uh, uh in in the sense of john cage you know indeterminacy yeah Arnold, I have one more question for you, which relates to something you said earlier, actually, about how obviously accessing music and purchasing music was a very different process back in, say, your teens and early 20s. How do you tend to bring music into your life now? Like, how are you discovering music? Uh, You know, what formats are you buying it in? Yeah. Tell me what that looks like. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, so I have to think out loud now a bit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I find it more difficult now because everything is available. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that has an incredible, it's an incredible advantage Yeah, that, uh, yeah, you know, I can go to Spotify or whatever. I don't find, if I don't find it here, I'll find it somewhere else. Um, you know, I'll find someone illegally putting it on. <laughs> Uh, YouTube or whatever. Um, uh, So the access is there. uh, But of course, there's something and that's really hard to talk about. You know, you tend to sound like an old fogey when you say when if I would say that there was a value to finding Uh something. Yeah. Yeah. And and the time it took to get to it. Yeah. And the value, you know, you feel like you're holding something valuable that maybe not everyone knows about. And that's kind of lost now. I know this because I was teaching for many years and uh, just thinking of my students, I talked to them about that a lot because they didn't, you know, they didn't understand that. So it's the same in the arts and all the arts and especially, you know, in what we, yeah, it's a, for lack of a better term, the avant-garde. So the, the, the non-mainstream kinds of music. So everything is available. Um, it also, I mean, it's had positive effects. So for instance, when I started out, with tuning, working in alternative tunings, nobody knew what I was talking about. It was such a, a niche area that, wow. uh, you know, the people who were really into it were really a little bit weird. So, <laughs> so I, uh, I mean, it was, a, yeah, it was, it was really in the corner somewhere. And now all the kids, they all, you know, they're all working with tuning systems because the technology is available and you can hear it. Uh, and uh, so it's become... Uh, at least in a lot of the young musicians I know, kind of part of the toolkit, you know, mm-hmm. that's really interesting. But about how I find, get access to music, 
Okay, there's also something that happens when you maybe get to a certain age, so I don't need to hear every single thing that's come out anymore. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, um, and so I do depend on asking, you know, mm-hmm. younger people what they're listening to and that they recommend music to me, you know, uh, rather than letting Spotify do it. Right. I would, yes. uh, you know, just what are you listening to? And... Uh, um, and there, yeah, I mean, because the t- because so much is available, and the in a younger generation, um, there's there's uh, uh, it can be a very wide range of things. You know, so, yeah, I tend to um, ask people around me, and especially younger people, um, and uh, uh, of course, I do also, you know. Uh, look online, you know, uh, I, uh, as everyone else, um, people give me, a lot of musicians give me their records, so uh, uh, there's a library, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I read the, you know, I might look at The Wire, I might look for recommendations um, uh, from certain journalists, yeah, that I respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a much, it's a very wide uh uh, area, but um, you know, I tend to uh, not. Okay, when I was younger, I used to list have music going all the time. You know, when I think of me in my twenties, you know, even early thirties, and I tend to wanna, you know, I have I have more of a problem having that background music on. I tend to wanna listen to something, you know, uh, intentionally. So. Yes. Uh, and I think that's changed, yeah. So um, you know, I'm going to be 70. So uh, maybe also, I, I don't mind having no sound. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. The world is pretty noisy, yeah. Right. So, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, that's maybe a difference. And uh, you know, any other questions? No, Arnold, that's beautiful. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through i mean firstly your new record which i'll repeat is wonderful and then these three records as well which i've had loads of fun with it's great to hear them all interconnected as well obviously you get the sense that there's a through line simply because someone is putting them all together so it's lovely to hear them as a gear and set so thank you so much for your time on this it's okay thank you take care <laughs> <laughs>